Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah Richards, waiting for my brother to get out of A&E in Cornwall. And I'm Will Davis, being eaten alive by mosquitoes pretty much everywhere I go. And what relation does this have to anything else? We're thinking about summer holidays. The sun is out, there's birds in the sky and people on the streets. And no one's wearing a shirt. It's summertime in Bristol, which means it's about time for us to get very busy with all of the rest of the summer, so we're going to go on a bit of a summer holiday for the next month or so. But the rest of the scientific world is about to go on its holidays. You can see that in the science they are releasing on Eureka Alert. Because, boy howdy, everyone is getting rid of all of their stories so they can pack up and jet off somewhere fancy. So, because everyone is getting things published before they head off, we've got a lot of stories today. So we are going to go on a rapid-fire tour of 25 of the best summer stories to take away with you. Think of it as a summer summary. Anyway. Try and keep up at home. We're going to start off with some news from Lapine Ranta, University of Technology, which follows on from episode 31 of ours, which was all about saving the world. People were saying, oh, the best we can do with renewable energy might be 80% of a national grid's demand. To which they've said, challenge accepted. Researchers from a number of institutions have analysed hundreds of studies published by other people to argue that in fact there's nothing particularly in the way of a 100% sustainable energy in the future. If anything, the earlier papers aiming for 80% were limited in their ambition. And Dr Tom Brown of Karlsruhe Institute of Technology says, Several of the issues raised by the Heard paper are important. You have to realise that there are technical solutions to all the points they raised using today's technology. And Professor Brian Vad Matheson of Aalborg University, a co-author of The Response, points out that their work is dealing with every single point which is brought up as a stopping point for reaching entirely sustainable energy production, one by one using the latest research, and he'd like to suggest... Let's get back to the business of modelling low-cost scenarios to eliminate fossil fuels from our energy system so we can tackle the climate and health challenges they pose. And wouldn't you know, a paper that came out just a few days after that one, from Imperial College London, follows up with Investing in low-carbon tech now will save money. I guess this is trying to put a business-friendly spin on saving the world. There's a lot of businesses and individuals who are sat there thinking, well, I'd love to reduce my carbon footprint further, but solar panels are so expensive. The unicorn that they say people are waiting for would be something that generates electricity at zero carbon emissions at low cost and high flexibility, and that waiting for this miracle development is putting people off, and people would rather wait for that than invest in the imperfect current technologies. Seemingly forgetting that you get to future technologies by using the current technologies and getting them better and getting them everywhere, and then, in the future, the technologies of the future will be there. Especially on the governmental scale, waiting to adopt this technology increases costs even if that perfect thing does arrive, because you'll have been spending lots of money building infrastructure for more traditional ways of generating power, which then will go unused. I suppose it must be the viewpoint of, what do you mean it's not perfect immediately? Why even bother? Because you save the world. Interestingly, they don't seem to have that attitude towards current efforts to build new nuclear power plants. Oh, you mean those completely imperfect ones which have had to be shut down several times for safety and health violations and for running out of money, building material and planning, going missing? Private company who were building it coming cap in hand to the government and going, um, can you bail us out with some more cash, please? 
That is a wonderful diversion, but we mustn't, we don't have time, we've got to get on to more of our human brains. Making these bad decisions, not investing in green technology immediately. Seriously guys, you should give that a go. It turns out that maybe we should just tell people that if we invest in green technology, all our friends will like us better. Maybe that'll keep our social monkey brains real happy. A study from Dartmouth College have found that the brain is tuned towards social learning even when it's at rest. It's doing this in two regions of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex and the temporomial junction, which, according to this press release, are integral to social inference and our ability to evaluate other people's personalities, mental states, and intentions. I'm going to call my next Electra album the temporomial junction. Sounds funky. From a study of 19 participants who, whilst undergoing an MRI, were asked to complete some social and non-social tasks, such as word association, responding to pictures, and giving kind of their feelings and associated words to that, these junctions were still firing off, were still making signals, were still enforcing social learning, while nothing else was going on at all. So hey, maybe you should try and embed some learning outcomes into your next techno album. I think you'd be in with a really good shot, seeing as... Upbeat songs by female singers dominate the charts. I mean, it would help if I learned to sing. I've listened to techno. That is not important. But I would need to learn to play an instrument. I've listened to techno. That's not important. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the dark side of a squishy monkey brain from the aptly named Black Dog Institute, it turns out that many people with a common mental illness find it onset by the strain of jobs. Like, yeah, that's stress. Also, that workplaces that take steps to reduce the strain that their employees are experiencing at work could prevent up to 14% of new cases of common mental illness from occurring. But if you are some kind of business-minded individual and wants to know, well, what does that mean for my bottom line, we're talking billions in lost revenue. So do something to help their stress, and they might help out the company. But I mean, what do we know? What does a study examining 6,870 participants about their mental health related to job strain know? Probably quite a lot. Let's give this reduce job strain thing a try, shall we? You know, like having enough people on board to do all the jobs. Maintaining that work-life balance. Apparently, having job-life balance is good. Not having one is bad. This shocker comes to us from the Journal of Business and Psychology, who find that having two jobs is great for businesses' bottom lines, but not so much for your family. People who have two jobs are performing equally well in both of them as their colleagues who only have the one job, but they're sacrificing family time to do it. Where else do you go when you're not at your job? You go home to your family. Or out with your friends. And if you're not doing those things, then yes, the time you spend socialising and with your family there's less of it. That's just maths. The researchers tested comparing the level of work engagement of dual job holders towards their primary and secondary jobs, using a sample of teachers and bartenders to compare the work behaviour and attitudes of single and dual job holders. Both studies found people were not prioritising one job over the other. According to the research team, the results show there's no real need for organisations to enact policies that prevent people from taking on a second job, but given the negative personal effects and the impact it has on work-family conflict, organisations may be inclined to enact policies that help dual job holders strike a healthy balance between work and home life. I would suggest making them not feel like they have to take two jobs by paying them. Seeing as teachers are among the sample size here, yeah, 
I would be very much on board with paying them to the point that they don't have to take on a second job. While we're trying to stress people out a bit less, be nice to your local LGBTQ teens. Wouldn't you know that they are experiencing high levels of stress? 12,000 teenagers living in the US participated in an online teen survey, and the responses show that teenagers who identify with one of the letters in that nice long acronym we have are not only experiencing high levels of stress, anxiety and rejection, but also overwhelmingly feel unsafe in their own school classrooms. These numbers range from 95% reporting trouble sleeping at night to 26% saying they feel safe in their classroom. Three quarters of LGBTQ teens do not always feel safe in their school classrooms. If you happen to be a family member to an LGBTQ teen or a teen you suspect might be LGBTQ or a teen who you think can't possibly be LGBTQ because you keep saying how much you think those people are terrible, get it together. Because two-thirds of these teens have reported that they've heard family members making negative comments about their community, and it's not okay. On the resilient side of things, 91% of youth report feeling pride in being an LGBTQ person, 93% proud to be a part of their community, and 3 out of 5 students have access to a LGBTQ student club, which has been shown to have a positive impact on perceptions that they have of their school experiences and providing support for hostile communities, home experiences, that whole thing. So yeah, look after the kids. Let's keep things rolling on the squishy monkey brain train, which is going to be the title of my next funk album. Excellent. I look forward to it. With the University of Colorado handling the sensitive topic of should we let people with dementia keep a hold of all of their guns? The main argument for limiting the access of people suffering from dementia to firearms is the same as the main argument for limiting the access of people with any mental illness from access to firearms, which is that having a gun in the house makes it really an awful lot easier to kill yourself. Indeed, Marion Betts of the University of Colorado School of Medicine notes that 91% of older adults' firearm deaths are due to suicide, and firearms are the most common method of suicide among people with dementia. The condition can involve experiencing hallucinations, delusions, agitation, and aggression, as well as just, when you're aware of what's going on with you, feelings of hopelessness associated with lots of mood disorders because you're losing it. Marion Betts frames it as, When is it the right time to give up the keys, be it to a gun safe or to a car? What are the relevant state or national laws? When and how should conversations occur? It seems like now is the right time to start having them, seeing as the number of adults with Alzheimer's is expected to grow to 13.8 million in the US by 2050. They have also made some recommendations about the caregivers of adults with dementia. And while talking about gun ownership with people with dementia is a good idea, in the study of bad ideas, fertility is found to be not affected by acupuncture whatsoever when trying to increase IVF birth rates, and does actually slightly increase mortality overall. This is a study of over 800 women in Australia and New Zealand, and unsurprisingly, since we've got no idea of what the actual mechanism that makes acupuncture apparently work, except for the placebo effect, is, it doesn't really help. And whilst we did talk about it in our versus breast cancer episode that acupuncture slightly helped with the joint pain for women who are going through breast cancer treatments, when it comes to IVF fertility, nada. 
on the upside, if you've already started having acupuncture to help with whatever it is you need help with, the women undergoing treatments did report a psychosocial benefit from having the acupuncture, that they felt more relaxed, relieved from stress, and good about themselves, which the authors will be writing up in a further paper. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And the good ideas keep on coming from Case Western Reserve University, who suggests that we can prevent murder by addressing domestic violence, because violent people in the home should be stopped before that violence escalates to murder. Correct. The study relied on an 11-question survey given to people reporting domestic violence to the police and assessed each individual's risk for homicide and severe assault. Among respondents, those who were perceived to be of a high risk were identified, and amongst these high-risk victims, 88% had survived a previous strangulation attempt, 88 had been previously threatened with murder, and 89% believed their attacker capable of killing them. So yeah, stop that. Stop their partners from going through with what they seem to promise to do. The recommendations from the study are that by focusing on these higher-risk cases with increased monitoring, individualised intervention plans, and links to appropriate services and resources, a really big difference could be made. Another way to have a positive effect in your local community is tackling this whole opioid crisis that there seems to be. One way of doing that would be stop getting people dependent on opioids as they enter hospital and then leave them hanging by the time they're going out of it. And on that note, lead study author Jason Kennedy notes that most previous studies of opioid use in healthcare have focused on the outpatient setting, but opioids are often introduced during hospitalisation. That's something clinicians can control. So we looked at inpatient prescription of these drugs to identify targets that may reduce opioid use once patients are out of the hospital. The argument essentially goes based on an analysis of more than 357,000 non-obstetrical adults hospitalised between 2010 and 2014. I'm assuming by non-obstetrical they mean not having babies. Yeah, because they get, like, some real good drugs. And focused on the 192,000-odd patients who hadn't received any opioids in the year prior to their hospitalisation. Nearly half of those patients were given opioids while they were in hospital, and after they'd been discharged, they were more than twice as likely to report using them as outpatients within a 90-day period. A few more numeric highlights from that are that those who took an opioid for more than three-quarters of their hospital stay were 32% more likely than those who took an opioid for less than one-fourth of their stay to be prescribed an opioid within 90 days of leaving the hospital. So, using opioids means they're more likely to be prescribed more opioids and then keep using the opioids. And 20% of those receiving opioids in the ICU received intravenous opioids on transfer to the medical ward, keeping them sedated, keeping them feeling the good times whilst whatever is happening to them is happening to them. And unsurprisingly, the recommendation coming from this is that reducing the use of opiates towards the end of a hospital stay, especially in the 24 hours before discharge, might reduce the need for outpatient prescriptions and weaning ICU patients off of the intravenous opioids before moving them to the medical ward might help as well. Expecting patients to go cold turkey with themselves if you do keep prescribing them opioids is going to lead to some health complications down the line. There are reasons that they're a very addictive set of substances and it is sensible to not foster dependencies on them. In more good health advice, exercise. That's pretty much the advice of the Physiological Society, who say that four to five days a week of exercise will slow down your heart's ageing. Go out, have a walk, pick some things up and put them down again. 
Indeed, they have specifically suggested that their four to five day suggestion is the optimum for keeping your heart and arteries in a youthful state and not getting all stiff and full of gunk. Speaking of stiff and full of gunk, using Tinder doesn't result in more casual sex. In fact, you're likely to have as much sex using Tinder as you would without it. Maybe this is just true for the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. But they have found that their study participants' attitude towards casual sex in general had more of a bearing on how many partners they partnered with than if or how often they used dating apps such as Tinder. Turns out that people who are interested in casual sex are more likely to have casual sex than those who aren't, regardless of if you meet them on the internet, in the pub, anywhere else that you meet people. That's pretty much where I live, is in the internet and the pub. I know a few people who had very eventful freshers weeks. You know, everyone's trying to make friends. But when it comes to casual sex, how does anyone really know what they're looking for in a relationship? When you get started in that relationship, though, you might surprise yourself with just how long it lasts. The start of this press release suggests that the conventional wisdom is that long-term and short-term relationships are obviously different from each other. Some people are the type you'd want to marry, others you just want to fling with. I'd argue that if it's a relationship rather than a hookup, you are setting out on the path of let's see where this goes and therefore they'll look very much the same no matter how long it lasts after that point. I have known people whose hookups have turned into long-standing marriages and whose great first dates have gone absolutely nowhere at all. Because, yes, University of California Davis, long-term and short-term relationships are initially indistinguishable. You just don't know. They do know that at some point romantic interest tends to plateau and decline in short-term relationships, while in long-term relationships it continues to ascend and reaches a higher peak. So, you know, if after a few months you're looking at your fairly recently acquired romantic partner and going, ah, they're alright, you might not be in this for the long haul. And interestingly, they do note that the trajectories often start to diverge around the time that the relationship starts to become sexual. As Paul Eastwick, Associate Professor of Psychology at UC Davis and lead author on the study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, says, People will hook up with some partners for the first time and think, wow, this is pretty good. Others spark more of a meh. On a similar university flashback, Viewing medical marijuana ads is linked to higher pot use among adolescents, according to research from the Rand Corporation, who have found that in states where it is legalised and very profitable to advertise medical marijuana and legal marijuana services, kids in these neighbourhoods are more likely to try marijuana. Because uh, advertising works. No matter what it is you're selling, advertising works. I mean, honestly, I think the fact that in the US it's fairly normal to see ads for pharmaceuticals, specifically prescription drugs, on TV is weird enough as it is. I've seen some wild billboards on the ways in and out of airports. It's the Wild West, but 15 foot up and 20 foot wide. I feel like not encouraging advertising of that, and by extension not encouraging advertising of medical marijuana might help with that. If we don't want the advertising to work, we should probably stop advertising it. Now, the study does also note that the more advertising young people see, the more marijuana they're likely to consume. Advertising works. But hey, if the kids are going for the medical marijuana, then at least it's medical, right? As opposed to the completely non-medical tobacco, which they can still purchase legally once they are of age. A new review published in the journal Addiction has compiled 
the best and most up-to-date information on alcohol, tobacco and illicit drug use and the burden of death and disease. The findings show the largest health burden from substance use was attributed to tobacco smoking and the smallest to illicit drugs. We must, of course, note that tobacco is much more easily accessed by lots of people and therefore taken much more often by many more people as opposed to illicit drugs. And also, the definition of what counts as illicit drugs does vary depending on where you are in the world. But smoking isn't good for you. Drinking isn't good for you. You're an adult and can make your own choices. And while we're talking about things that are on the increase... Tropical storms and hurricanes are more likely to be worse for everyone involved based on predictions and projections from the National Science Foundation. They took analysis of 22 recent hurricanes, backmapped it onto historic hurricanes, and saw what the outcomes would be and kind of then projected that forwards into the future. They found that hurricanes up and down the US Gulf Coast, such as Hurricane Ike and Hurricane Gustav and Hurricane Ernesto, are more likely to last longer move slower across land, and dump much more water. It's like the climate is changing. For a weather system to turn into a hurricane, it needs to have a sea surface temperature, needs to be a certain amount, which I can't remember because it's 10 years since we covered that in uh, A-Level Geography. But the heat of the sea provides the energy to the weather system, and a hotter sea has more energy that it can confer to the weather system, thus bigger, wetter, Hurricanes. For context, last year's hurricane season was the costliest on record, according to Munich RE Insurance, costing an estimated 215 billion US dollars in losses. They haven't got a death count in the paper here, but that was also way up. So it makes business sense and social sense and moral sense to stop global warming. We keep saying it. Someone please do get on that. Speaking of stating the obvious... Now, I myself grew up in Cheltenham, which is mainly known for hosting big horse races. I spent a lot of my childhood walking past a table covered in facts about racehorses suffering because they're being raced that was usually set up by animal rights types during Gold Cup week. So the headline, Racing Can Be Fatal to Horses, is... not a surprise. The research from the University of Guelph and published in the Equine Veterinary Journal puts a number at, out of every 1,000 races, 2.27 horse deaths occur because of exercise-associated stress. About 1% of racing thoroughbreds die annually in association with racing or trial runs. And this is completely beside the ones who trip over a fence, clip a toenail it seems, and someone decides, well, time to take them down to the glue factory. It's usually at least a broken bone, but... Yeah, a broken limb wouldn't be reason to euthanise most animals, but I'm told that horses are somewhat unusual. And our next story also states the bleeding obvious. If you're a person with any sort of moral sense. According to Queensland University of Technology, women should have the right to reject pregnancy. And laws should not force women to risk death and injury by having a baby. Now, the political debate between being pro-choice or being pro-life, which is more accurately phrased as anti-choice, has reached on for decades, with many around the world saying that women, in charge of their own bodies, in charge of their own healthcare, should be able to make every decision about their bodies and about their healthcare. And some people disagreeing with this. The press release does mention that morality shouldn't come into it, even though actually the moral choice is to 
not force people to have children they don't want, to not force children to be born into families that don't want them, but also that the owner of the body which will be gestating the pregnancy should have the ultimate say in whether they want to go through that. Pregnancy is difficult. It changes a lot of things about your body and your experience of the world because it's strenuous. It's risky. It's something which you should only do when you want to and with every intention to and with every medical assurance that it's not going to possibly kill you. And hey, if you want to start a fight with me about whether this is okay or not, feel f***ing free. And the dumb train approaches Obvious Station once more with news from University of Southern California. The shocking revelation that gentrification draws more whites to minority neighborhoods. I thought that's what gentrification was. If we're being detached about it, we might suggest that gentrification is simply the increase in wealth in a neighborhood. But given that disparities exist in the average wealth level of white people and not white people. Yeah, gentrification does mean an area will get whiter. That's how that goes. Or in the words of Anne Owens, a study lead author and sociologist at USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts and Sciences, when white neighbourhoods experience socio-economic ascent, they retain whites, and when minority neighbourhoods experience it, they become more white. Our study indicates that socio-economic ascent is actually perpetuating existing racial inequality within and between neighbourhoods. So, you know, bear that in mind. P.S. If anyone would like to donate money to the Save Hamilton House Fund to stop a local, vibrant community centre filled with local artists, creative studios, shelters, and a delicious bar and cafe from being turned into luxury one- and two-bedroom apartments, then there's petitions, there's websites, save Hamilton House, hamiltonhouse.org, all that jazz. Keep Bristol weird. You may remember, a year or so ago, we covered a story about how artificial intelligences learn the biases of the datasets they are fed. So if you feed your AI sexist material, it will be sexist. If you feed it racist material, it will be racist. And the University of Manchester would like to draw your attention to their headline, Artificial intelligence needs to be socially responsible, says new policy report. You know, like the rest of the tech industry has been so socially responsible so far. Here's a good opportunity to change that. And they are specifically calling on policymakers to ensure the development of artificial intelligence is democratic and socially responsible. Dr. Barbara Ribeiro from Manchester Institute of Innovation Research says that ensuring social justice in AI development is essential. AI technologies rely on big data and the use of algorithms, which influence decision-making in public life and on matters such as social welfare, public safety and urban planning. In these data-driven decision-making processes, some social groups may be excluded, either because they lack access to the devices necessary to participate, or because selected databases do not consider the needs, preferences, and interests of marginalized and disadvantaged people. You know, like humans don't. Let's make our robots better people than us. We're coming up on the end of our summer special with all the learning to take away with you. But just before we get to the end, here's a few more quick stories about learning and about education, starting with news from New York University that kids who have access to books and adult support find their learning opportunities are enhanced. Because yes, that's how teaching works. This study has looked into it in a little more detail than the headline suggests, but essentially 
Not all children have equal access to books. If you enable children to have better access to books when they didn't before, it helps. They've got here a picture of the book vending machine to enable kids to have access to more books than they would otherwise have access to, as if libraries haven't been a thing for a while and should be encouraged and fostered as a learning opportunity in schools, in communities, in children's lives a lot more. This is very much looking at book deserts, areas where, due to funding shortages and social problems and hardships, the access to the material is not there. And some of those kids with access to books might be curious, might be interested in learning, might want to learn more. Which is good, because curiosity is really good for learning math and reading at a young age. Because that's how learning works. Specifically that if you're interested in something, you are likely to pay more attention to it, put more effort into it. You still might not be good at it, but you're going to do better than a kid who's not good at it and not interested. And this is information gathered from over 6,000 students' behaviours in math skills and reading from kindergarten and early school ages that wanting to learn and being engaged in what you're learning makes you learn better. And while we're talking about helping people learn, you know how teenagers are tired all the time? The University of Delaware would like to suggest letting teens nap at school. And not just in class, like actually give them some space and time to do it for reals. A nice designated nap time and nap place, and particularly in teenagers, being allowed to take a nap might really make a big difference to your school performance. Well, if a brain is swelling in size as much as everything else is in a teenager's body, then giving it time to rest and to grow and to take in all of the learning which it's been doing, then good. And to round us out, a headline that is surprising, giraffes surprise biologists yet again. Now, we've read 24 of these press releases here. I think we might just leave this 25th one by itself. If you want to find out how giraffes have surprised biologists yet again, then click on through, have a read. This will all be on eurekanerd.com or in any of the iTunes descriptions. Where it is you're listening to this, we will have the full reading list accompanying it. Suffice to say, I'm less surprised that giraffes have been surprising once than I am that giraffes have been surprising apparently many times. Oh, when was the first time you saw a giraffe? In the flesh would have been... West Midland Safari Park, aged seven or eight. Would you describe it as a surprising experience? Not so surprising as the school friend who I was going along with screaming at their very long tongues. So there you go. Surprises keep on coming from giraffes. But that is it. That is the sum total of your summer reading. We hope you've been taking notes. There will be a quiz. There won't. Don't panic. But do stay tuned on Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast, where we'll be keeping you up to date with all of the latest in science research. If you have any comments or concerns, you can email us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to spread the word about us, you can go about telling your friends, and you can leave us rates and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. If you could leave an iTunes review of something surprising about giraffes, I think that would really set us apart from the crowd. But until we see you next time, that is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.
Think of it as a summer summary. Oh, dig. Is the whole... Is this... Is this all so you could make that pun? I just thought of it now. Lies. You had that in your pocket for a week. (laughs)